Hey, it's Jay. And uh, every so often, we break off a piece of podcasting that is not a specific show, but is found across shows. And we go deeper into that theme with people that we think can uniquely teach it and speak to it and are creators just like you and me. Today, we're going to dive into something that has been a passion project for many episodes of mine, not so much on this show, but on my other podcast, Unthinkable. It's a passion project of mine. It's something that I, I've, I've hacked my way forward, but I've, I've always had so many questions about because the shows that do this well, I just adore. And I just want to know, like, how, how did you make that magic? And that topic is sound. It sounds kind of weird. I know because everything we do in audio is technically sound, but I mean, sound design and music composition and music scoring for podcasting. How in the world does that work? How is that a function? How do people who occupy that function and deliver it for clients or as a, as a day job, how did they think about it? And am I any good at it? I mean, I've done 145 episodes of Unthinkable. I honestly don't know. I'm so close to it. I, I think so, but let's put it to the test. I am going to put forth an example of my work in addition to some others' work on this episode. And by the way, if you're listening to some of your favorite shows and you're immersed in the sound and the music and you're wondering how the heck does that all come together? Well, maybe this episode can shed some light on that. So I have just one question for you. Does that sound like a plan? Huh? No. Theme song. Yep. That, that's a theme song. Good. Good call. Let's get to the theme song. I want to know how you do the things you do. Welcome to Three Clips, a Castos original series. I'm Jay Akunzo. I'm an author, a speaker, a showrunner, and an avid podcaster across multiple shows. And I'm so excited to take you inside the craft of podcasting in a different way today. Usually, we have a host or producer come on and act as our guest as they go inside their own work with us. But today, we're mixing things up. We're going to talk to two different people involved in podcasts, Sam Riddell and Joel Rostin, both of whom occupy a different space than, you know, me as a host. They talk about and think about and work within the sound of the episode. Sam's a producer. You may recognize her name from the episode we did a while ago with the Spotify SoundUp Bootcamp winner in those jeans. Sam joined us with the host of that show, Dr. Janina Jeff. Sam does amazing sound design on In Those Jeans, and she is also the primary host and producer of Inner Ho Uprising, a sex, love, and dating podcast helmed by four black feminists, and she's a freelancer who works in sound. As for Joel Rostin, Joel studied classical guitar performance at the University of Hartford's Hart School. He teaches a class in music literacy for content creators, and he covers all the elements of getting music onto your creative project. He's also toured with, composed for, and performed in his own bands, and he's written for various music ensembles. Joel is the co-founder of Title Card Music and Sound. He creates custom compositions for creative projects like TV, commercials, film, and video, and of course, podcasts. And they also offer a library of original music available to subscribers to use for their projects. They're each here with their own clips, and then I'm bringing out one of my clips from Unthinkable to showcase sound design and music, and we're going to break down the craft of really maximizing this medium of making a show that feels more immersive thanks to sound design and music. But before we get to our clips, let's just meet Sam and Joel. Joel, I want to start with you. When you explain to someone else what it is you do, what are you trying to tell them about the role of music in podcasting and your role in that? Yeah, my job is to sort of figure out what non-musicians are talking about when they try to talk about music. <laughs> it seems like my job is to make music, and that's true. But I think that any sort of person who makes music professionally for media will say that a good chunk of the work is just trying to translate what people are talking about when they talk about music. Can you give me an example of a moment where you had to translate? Well, I, I mean, every moment. But yeah, like, sure. Like if someone asks, you know, I've gotten briefs for, say, car commercials that ask for, you know, husky everyman music, you know, like, 
you have never you've never turned to your friend and been like, oh, dude, check out this part of the song. It's so every man. Right. That has never happened to you in your entire life. But like that, that sort of like like we know that husky every man music probably means strummy guitar with some sort of like, you know, percussive element. Right. Like, who knows? You know, it just, it's like getting a feel for the thing. And like, to be clear, I am this person in every other aspect of my life, right? Like, I know how to talk about music, but like, you know, if I have to talk to like a graphic designer, like I know like Helvetica and Comic Sans, right? I'm not going to like, I have no idea how to talk about these things at all. So um, I'm trusting other people to sort of translate whatever I'm trying to say in the same way that sort of a media composer has to translate what people producing things are looking for. Sam, you do a lot of a lot. Um, what would you say you have to explain to other people when it comes to sound design specifically uh, most frequently? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. I, I think, uh, I guess it depends on who you're talking to <laughs> when it, uh, when it comes to communication and things like that. So I have had, I guess a couple of instances of communicating with composers and trying to explain definitely like the feel of what we're trying to go for. And I think it is, uh, it's a little bit challenging when the composer has not actually listened to or doesn't have a full understanding of the script. So there can kind of be that, that, uh, gap in communication where it's like, this is what I'm going for. And I might not be explaining it the best way because you don't have the full context of the episode. So I think that's, uh, that's that's something that I, I come into a lot. When you're working with a host, Sam, like when you're working with Janina, for example, mm-hmm. on In Those Jeans, what what are some of the things that you, especially early on, had to explain about sound design? Because I, you know, I find myself trying to tinker with it. So as someone who's uninitiated, I'm putting myself in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you explain to me is like good sound design? Like, what are you going for? What do I need to know? If I'm, if I'm trying to do it myself, like, where do I even begin? Yeah, I think you have to, like what I was saying with uh, in terms of the composer understanding what the feel of the show is, I think the sound designer and the producer of the show kind of have to agree with what the role of sound design is in the show, you know? So there are a lot of shows where, I mean, sound design shows up in different ways. So the sound design can be a supportive element. It can be understated and things like that and kind of just like threading you along the way. But within those genes, it's very much, it's like a third character in the show because it's such a science heavy show. And so it's serving a different role. And that's the conversation that Janina and I had early on where she really wanted it to be this like heavily designed, she called it like an orgasmic experience. So I think that, (laughs) (laughs) I think that uh, initial conversation of what element you want the design to play in is a really important conversation to have early on. So I I think we should move into the clips. So here's how we're going to do this. Uh, Each of us have brought a clip today. Um, Mine is going to go last, mostly because I want people to hear what actual good work in this domain sounds like first. Uh, And then we can bring out mine and and you you two can have at it. I I have very thin skin and it's going to hurt, but this is necessary. Uh, Sam, why don't we start with you? Uh, If you can just tee up the clip, give us the context of the episode, if, if there is any backstory in the production that we need to know too, that'd be great. So kind of like the episode content and anything we need to know about your process creating it that leads us into the clip. Yeah. So uh, this is a clip from In Those Jeans Season 1, Episode 7, I think. Uh, it is called Damn Gina, which is like a joke about the sitcom Martin, but also a reference to a genetic privacy law called Gina. And basically the whole episode is about ways to that you can or can't secure your genetic privacy if you're engaging in direct-to-consumer genetic testing. So the clip that I bought is kind of like a mashup of like the front and the back of the episode. And it's using this analogy. Uh, this show is very heavily analogy-based uh, because we're trying to explain this complex things about genetics to folks. So uh, we use this analogy of a house to describe your genetic profile. So that's kind of what the clip is getting at. Awesome. Some things to keep in mind when we're considering genetic privacy. Let's contextualize privacy a bit. Your genetic information is like your house. There is a multitude of ways someone can invade the privacy of your home. 
They can peep through the windows. He's climbing in your windows. Break into your house. Steal your mail. Or just monitor your habits, like what time of the day you leave to go to work. I always feel like somebody's watching me. There are also several things that can help you maintain your privacy. You can lock your door, install an alarm, put up some shades. Or if you're anxious enough, you could just stay inside forever or for a very long time. Let's think of our genetic privacy in this context. Just like your house, there are many things that can affect how much of your information stays private. There are laws, practices, personal responsibilities, and much more that goes into it. Let's say you know all the risk involved with genetic testing, are confident in your safety mechanisms, and decide to engage in genetic testing. Let's go back to our house analogy. Let's say you're like me, and you often throw house parties, or as we say in New Orleans, hold in court. Every first Saturday, you allow folks to come in your home and get turned. You don't have an issue with them seeing what your house looks like or the photos of you hanging up on the walls. But when folks are in your house, they're also seeing pictures of your family members or the card your great aunt gave you for Christmas or a package you're shipping out with your dad's address on it. You consented to have people in your home, but your family members whose personal information is also in your home did not consent. This is the case when you submit your data to genetic databases. Your genetic information is essentially a piece of a puzzle that can lead to the identification of your relatives. So if just 2% of all African descendants participated in direct-to-consumer genetic testing, all of our business is out on Front Street. All because of those damn house parties. What the hell is going on here? Hey, shut up all that damn noise. This ain't Soul Train. So uh, a bunch of things that I noticed there and would love to ask more about, but Sam, I just put it to you to start. What did you notice about that piece? Uh, and, you know, what what went on to try and create that? Yeah. So I guess in the sound design, it was really kind of bringing life to the analogy. And so in every element, I wanted to kind of like drive home what we were saying. So you know, Janina is talking about all of these different ways that someone can uh, take things from your um, from your genetic profile and things like that. So just like while I'm going through the process, I just kind of go with like the feelings that come up with me. So when I was thinking of someone like <laughs> nefariously invading in my uh, genetic uh, information and stuff like that, like the song just like deep cover came to mind. <laughs> um by uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. And like I told our composer, like, can you give me something in the vein of deep cover? Because that's what this makes me feel like. And other sorts of things that are really um, like prevalent in our show are cultural cues. Uh, because the show is about like black identity and genetics or exploring genetics from the perspective of black identity. So, you know, like sound bites of memes and things will come up. Like uh, earlier in the season, Janina had like, sung somebody's watching me as a joke and I was like oh that reminds me of privacy let me just pull that in kind of exploring this uh orgasmic experience sort of thing and the back half of the clip is just uh bringing that uh analogy to life even more so before you know she's talking about your genetic information as a home and then in the end when people can actually invade we're in the scene of a house party so just kind of like having that reverberated house party music going on in the chatter and all that kind of stuff how much playing goes on? Like how much of this is trial and error and you're trying different things on behind the scenes before you're like, okay, at least this is directionally what we want. And maybe there's last mile refinements later, but you know, I, I think people are always looking for some clean silver bullet or some process where it's like, just do it this way. And as someone who's self-taught in all this and has never been formally trained, and that's why I'm excited to talk to both of you. Uh, for me, it's just massive trial and error. It's like, would this work? Let me play it under the voice and see. Nope. Okay. Let me change it. Let me, you know, it's always that. I, I, is it still that way for you? Yeah, for sure. Like even before I bring in like scratch music into the, uh, first of all, I bring in scratch music. It's not just like, oh, I thought of deep cover. And then I asked our composer, Chad, to like make something in the vein of deep cover. Like yeah. I need to actually see if it's 
working or whatever. So I'll play something under like in a preview and like listen to the the dialogue in my DAW. Um, I'll bring it in. I'll play with the levels and stuff like that. I'll hate it. I'll take it out. I'll bring in something else. We'll ask our composer to make something. Somebody doesn't like it. We have to change it. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, Joel, is there anything that stood out about that piece or anything you noticed? So I would just so I actually listened to that episode uh, a while back ago. Um, and I would say I remember it was the last time I laughed out loud at a podcast. I have this in my mind because there is a moment later on in that episode where you call back to the I always feel like and it's like pitch down. It's like, oh, yeah. and it's all slow. Someone says something that is like a total <laughs> bummer, right? About surveillance. And then th- this low voice is like, I'm laughing just thinking about it. Like, so that episode, I feel like, I mean, all those episodes are awesome. It's like, how can you go wrong? It's like makes you wonder why you didn't choose to be a scientist. That whole episode, <laughs> that whole show, right? Thank you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Joel, there was a moment there where, you know, she was, Janina, the host was just speaking as a narrator, teeing up what was about to happen. And then I heard uh, some bass subtly come in almost like to signal a transition. And then a second thing happened where she starts to rattle off a bunch of things. And now the snare comes in and it sort of livens up what is ultimately just a list. Super naive question. Are there names for these techniques? I mean, not real, not really formally because, you know, we're kind of the form, I think, of podcasts are sort of just starting to converge on uh, these sorts of elements. So it turns out that many shows of a certain type would like a sort of longer introduction and then music under that that sort of develops. And then maybe as you'll hear in my piece, there's like a short little break where that causes a little bit of tension and then some theme comes in gangbusters that kind of brands the show a little bit or something. But so these sorts of things are just like, um, you know, there's, there's also this idea of sort of end credits having a longer piece that sort of ties into the introduction somehow in some way that's thematically coherent with the introduction. So yeah. these things are all, I mean, clearly I don't have any <laughs> standardized vocabulary for talking about these things. Um, well, the re- you know, the reason I ask is I think a lot of people proceed based on taste. They proceed based on gut feel, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think I'm wondering if, if there's ways to start putting heuristics to this or talking to people that you're collaborating with, with a shared language. And perhaps not, perhaps it is as simple as sort of describing it best you can, but maybe then letting someone else hear what you're doing, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what, and maybe Sam, you would agree with this, is that even if people don't have a language for talking about, uh, you know, exactly what they're looking for, when you're dealing with people who are making things, they can talk about the feeling they are trying to have for their thing. And so then, you know, it's kind of, as the composer, I'm like, okay, how do I make music that supports that or sort of, brings out the frequency, those particular frequencies in this thing that they're, that kind of accentuates those things a little Yeah. More. Yeah. And I think even just the conversation, like not having a formalized language almost makes the process better and more uh, authentic because then you are, instead of like, ah, do this technique, it's like you're getting behind what you mean by doing the technique. So I started uh, on a different show, not in those genes. And I'm like a self-taught sound designer. I'm a self-taught podcaster. I went to school for video, which like there's a lot of uh, traits that carry over. But so in the script, it said like, can you put a mux sting here? And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. What the hell is a mux sting? Um, And they explained like it was just the music like bubbling up to like transition. But like me getting that and hearing them say that was a lot better than like, uh, here's my version of what a mux sting is. (laughs) See, that's what I'm talking about. That's the thing that, uh, you know, it's almost like the belief that there are these terms and you don't want to appear foolish or the belief that everybody has to be formally trained to do the type of work that they aspire to do, especially today where a lot of the gatekeepers are gone. And if you want to make something, you can just make it and get it out to at least a few people. Like, I think there's still this idea, like the formal education component and formal language component of holding people back. And if we just torpedo that assumption... I think a lot of people will be a little bit more creatively unleashed. And I do see sound and music as logical but ne- and necessary next steps for so many podcasters who have not thought about the field they're going for, who have only dealt in voice, um, whether it's narration or interview tape or both. And 
you know, and I guess that brings me back to the person who is the voice on your show, Sam, is, is Janina. Does she know the kind of vibe you're going for in a certain moment? Or are you then retrofitting the beat to match the way she speaks? Yeah, I think for our process on In Those Jeans, it's pretty much just her doing it straight or giving the feel of the episode, but not trying to match to the feel of the song. So sometimes in scripting, I'll have ideas for what song or what type of song might go under something. Like if it's an emotional moment, like obviously we want emotional music, but we never do because I coach her while she's doing tracking as well. We never do tracking to like fit a song or do tracking with like the song playing in her ear or something like that. Um, but yeah, sometimes we know what feel we want. And sometimes it's like when you're listening back to tape, you kind of like discover things in it and you discover a new way to tell the story. And so a totally different type of music can come out of my imagination during the editing process and during the assembly process. Joel, anything to add? Well, we're talking about like the order of operations or where music fits in the process. It's funny. Like I, I was just listening to Sam talk and it kind of gave me vertigo to sort of think about having to keep an ear on the actual audio that's being recorded while at the same time trying to think about like what music is going, how, what music is going to help that along. Like for me, I just get the finished audio and then it's just like time for music. And then I just make the music. Like sometimes, you know, if I'm making a theme for something and the show hasn't come out yet, it could be that it's explained to me what the theme needs to sound like. But I'm not in, in podcasts, you know, more in like documentary films and stuff. I'm like scoring to actual beats of a thing of a, of, you know, of an actual cue that's moving along. But in podcasts, it's more just like this sort of, these sort of beds that kind of just move a story along. And so there isn't as much specific scoring per episode so for me you know i just come in at the very end and put the music down or kind of or before just there's no audio that's kind of generally waiting for me to in some nuanced way (laughs) attach music to each moment but but i wonder if something is is maybe missed you know i think about when i'm doing every single piece of my narrative show unthinkable i am you know i am in my own head, I understand what I'm going for. I don't have to explain it to anybody. So it's a lot easier for me to say, you know, I know I already finished the voiceover here, but actually if I re-recorded it this way a little slower, it really works for this track that I found. So, you know, one of the things I'm thinking of is like, you know, Joel, you could say to somebody, hey, actually, if you edit it in a, like a really, like a three second pause here, it lines up with this moment in the music and it increases the drama in an appropriate way, not a kitsch way. I've definitely mentioned things like yeah, that. Yeah, okay, cool. Sure. Well, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But I but I every time I've done it, I've been like, uh, is this my place to do? I'm not sure. <laughs> I've been like, like 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 of course I want people to change things to make the music more awesome. Do you know what I mean? Like that's like <laughs> like you should weigh what I have to say very carefully because I'm coming from a very particular place, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I'm uh doing some sound design on a new project and I like just got off the phone with the producers of the project. And one thing that I think uh, they're really setting a good precedent with is like telling me like, we consider sound designers to be another producer on the show. So if you think like this pacing needs to change or something needs to go between the tracking or a sound bite can reverse to like build up the overall design of the show, then please do that. And I think that it would uh, be best for producers of a show to collaborate with not only the sound designers, but the composers in that way as well. I want to move on to Joel's clip. We're going to do this a little bit differently since Joel, you are a musician and a composer. And um, so you brought us the the music, like sort of not associated with a show. And then uh, we also want to play on the back end where the music was used in the show. So can you just um, tee up the, tr- the, the music, um, give us the backstory of it, and then we'll go to both of those clips back to back. First, your your work unused and then hearing it again in the show. So So just tee it up for us before we hear those two clips. Sure. So this is music that I made for a podcast uh, called Deep Tech, which is a podcast for the MIT Technology Review. You know, the different producers have different kinds of instructions that they give. The different things are important to them. This particular team kind of just gave me this sort of s- structural guidelines. And I actually went in and dug through my emails to see what they said. They said that the uh, the overall show this is be- this was before the show was was created. This was one of the ones that kind of just they were looking for this theme. Overall, the show will be optimistic but realistic, thoughtful and serious, with a dash 
of occasional fun or brashness. They asked for it to be most or partly electronic, but it can't sound too techy. And they actually sent me over a bunch of references, but none of them, maybe one or two of them was podcasts and eight or 10 of them were all TV scores. So essentially what I did, and I don't want to, we don't have to get too deep into it, but what, what I was thinking when I made this is that it starts off with this piano that's kind of in this kind of grouping of three, like one, two, three, one, two, three. And then this synthesizer comes in in an entirely different grouping. This grouping of like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, that kind of like changes the character. It's like technology sort of changing the character of the acoustic instruments. Um, and then the main theme when it comes in, there's, there's a kind of like, this is a, they ask for a sort of little dip, you know, to announce the show. And the main theme comes in and I s- thought it would be fun to just use a kind of a French horn for the main theme because I feel like, you know, in Western society, when we announce that we're <laughs> going <laughs> to <Yeah. laughs> explore yeah. something vast, vaguely with technology or some kind of science, then we use a French horn, I feel like. <laughs> and so that's uh, what kind of happened here. So, um, and then it just kind of, after the main theme, it just breaks down into this other section. They they asked for some, um, this whole track ended up being, I think, three and a half minutes or so. But this is a section that can kind of be played out over credits or be used for scoring in a different section. It's kind of, it's it kind of uses the sort of same language, same chord progression of, of the first part and then pops back in. Awesome. Well, let's let's get into uh, let's get into the clips. Okay, and now let's hear that same track from Joel applied to the show. What's going on here is that IBM isn't just skeptical that Google achieved quantum supremacy in this particular instance. It just thinks quantum supremacy is not very important. And what I was trying to understand was why. Why did they think that? For decades, we've been promised quantum computers. With their almost mythical power, these machines could solve hard problems and unlock new breakthroughs in science. Last fall, Google claimed it had taken a big step toward building the first useful quantum computer, and IBM immediately shot down that claim. So what's really going on? Technology Review's editor-in-chief, Gideon Litchfield, explains why the rivalry between these two tech giants goes even deeper than it appears, and why the dispute over quantum supremacy matters for the rest of us. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Deep Tech. So Joel, you did such a good job of describing what was the intent behind this that I actually want to toss it to Sam. Um, I saw some nods and smiles <laughs> as you heard both. What were you noticing? Yeah, um, I was first of all, I was jamming to the music. <laughs> it was just a well composed cool. piece. Um, but yeah, I think I started to like really uh, smile because I was reminded of the fact that Joel said like. The French horn is what we do when we're trying to convey this new techie world. And I was like, yep, that's it. That's what's going on. And I think it's um, music is so cool because even if someone didn't know what a French horn was or what it looked like, you know what it sounds like and you know what you associate with that. And I think we're kind of like doing, though I'm a sound designer, you're a composer, we're doing the same job of trying to like anchor onto cultural cues to convey a feeling. And I think it definitely did that. Cool. Joel, when you uh, got those notes from your client here, (laughs) we all kind of smiled when I heard you describe them. What worked or what... let, let Let me rephrase this. To get to that final product where it does snap into place so beautifully, what does a podcaster need to tell someone like you to get there? Or is it actually about like this back and forth constant process? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the process actually, I think, is what got us there. This was, if I recall, the first or second version that I sent over to them. But I think I probably wound up sending them five or six different versions around just based on the different sorts of samples that they sent over, things that they enjoyed. You know, I was looking for trying to they sent over things with a bunch of different moods. So I was trying to cover everything that they wanted. You know, maybe, you know, when they were like, oh, something that has a little melancholy to it, like maybe in their brain, it's super melancholy. So you make a kind of more, you know, you kind of accentuate more of their notes with different versions. Um, and then this is the one that they ended up enjoying the most. And then I, th- you know, I think this, the versions that I sent over to them were maybe 25 second like samples. And then it was when they they were like, this is the one that it kind of we fleshed it out with the more, you know, the longer development section in the middle and stuff. And then you, no one you, we didn't play the end, but the end comes back just the sort of extra gangbusters version of the the uh, main theme. What's the relationship between sound design and music? I noticed that sometimes it's like it's I don't know it's it's like if if someone said we have an ice cream buffet. And they invited me to it. It's like, there's just too much toppings. I'm like putting in, there's just, I, I, I'm going nuts. And I've noticed that from some shows where it's like, because we can <laughs> put music and sound and, you know, kind of create these ambient places that we're trying to visit with our, like people go nuts. What, what is a healthy dynamic between voice, sound, and music? Sam, do you want to take a crack at that one? Sure. Um, Yeah, I think it's kind of like what I was getting at in the beginning of the episode. It's what the feel of the show is, you know, and sometimes like podcasting is such a new art form and it is, though it is like journalistic and um, all of these other educational, it is also an art form. And so if you have a super avant-garde podcast where the music, you just want the music to be like, this character and the design to like go heavy and go hard. It's in your realm to do that. Um, But I think the balance is found in when you're listening back, what you want your listener to walk away with. And so if you want the design to like a lot of um, what happens in, in those genes, because we are talking about such dense topics, if you want the design to like really pull people along, you have to kind of ramp it up. But if you are in sort of a, like a very deep introspective quiet moment maybe like where someone is reflecting on tape maybe the music is an understated thing that kind of like nurtures the scene as opposed to is the main character of the scene joel anything to add no that's my answer cool. too <laughs> no, no problem at all i wanted to talk to you make sure make sure we're, we're going just back and forth popcorn style um I will say, actually, I mean, I I will say that I think that uh, when it's successful, it's usually due to a awesome producer who is synthesizing all these things and keeping a bird's eye view on stuff and making sure it all makes sense together. And, and on projects where I am actually in dialogue with sound designers, um, rather than sort of, you know, I I feel like I th- I understand what they're doing and can step back or step up more uh, for a given moment. I see a lot of not just podcasts, but a lot of creative projects, and and I've been guilty of this too. That the they don't have slack in the system. There's like no room to play and throw out the bad and enhance the good. And it's just I recorded with Sam and Joel for an hour, and we're maybe going to cut that down a little. I'm going to slap on an intro theme and an outro theme and a top and tail voiceover, and and I'm out. And I, I just think so much is lost when you're very rigid, where it's like most of what you capture, you have to use. Joel, for, question for you. How much like tossing out are, are, is necessary? Like how, how much time should I bake in to work with somebody like you on the piece we just heard? It depends really what you're looking for. You know, like on a piece like that, you know, it would be nice to have a couple weeks to work it out. The main sketches the you know four to six whatever main sketches that i did for them i probably got to them in a few days from talking from getting their initial notes but really the you know most composers for media i think um understand the schedules and can work fairly quickly 
I think it just comes down to what you're asking for and you know, sort of knowing what you're like in these sorts of situations. Are you a person who gets attached to temp music that you send in to people? It's not a bummer if you are, but it's a bummer if you are and you don't know that you are. And so uh, sort of understanding you know, what your correspondence styles and your sort of your, intu- your own intuitions for these things are, I think, makes things go faster. What kind of tropes or cliches or moments when it comes to music and podcasting um, makes you cringe a little, Joel? <laughs> I just, you know, I just think everyone's doing a great job. Boo. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, you know, I... You know, I, I didn't write this to my business partner when I told him that I was doing this podcast, but I, w- I almost wrote, I won't just rail about low drones when I'm on this podcast. Can, can you please because explain? Sort of, I, there might, might be some inside baseball. Yes, uh, right. And so uh, I, I'm, I, I love like minimal music. I love, you know, it's, um, you know, it's droney, pensive music. But I think that... W- I think that we have sort of converged on this sort of music for a lot of these media forms because it's really it's music that's really easy to it, it's easy to make and I mean it's easy to make like meaning it's like quick and you know people can just you know uh the tools for making this music are readily available and it's music that's really easy to talk about it's very easy if you don't know like feel comfortable talking about music to sort of articulate ideas for something this needs to be really minimal sounding and sort of let this part breathe a little bit and it also just straight up sounds good under most things so like it just it just works under most stuff and so i I wouldn't say that i'm bummed when i hear that music but i am bummed when i'm listening to a show that i feel i could have really was like a missed opportunity for some really cool music that kind of took a uh, for totally understandable reasons kind of safer way out what are i guess what are some of the helpful and and unhelpful ways to explain that what that cool music is like i I mean it's one thing to say like here's a bunch of examples but if you're not involved early in the process for the tone and the feel there, Joel, like, is it, it's so easy to slip into those tropes, you know? Like, so how do I... Right. I mean, this is why asking me a question like this is like, <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, my answer is just like, dude, find some awesome composer and let them do whatever they want. I, I think that's... No, <laughs> but of, co- I think it's important. of course I feel that way. I, I think it's important. <laughs> that would be amazing. Sam, Sam is nodding viciously too. Like, I think this matters. <laughs> it matters that you find the right people and maybe not look for, you know, like a process tweak or something like that. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I think that like, you know, all that I've said is true, but it's also the job of people like Sam and me, like, even though, yes, you know, left to our own laboratories to make our personal things, we'd probably come up with some pretty out stuff. It, part of our job is to make things that are within the tolerances of what people are looking for, right? Like, if you're like, make me some weird music, I'll make you weird music, <laughs> but it's not going to be like capital W weird music. Do you know what I mean? Because that no one wants to hear that in a podcast necessarily. Some podcasts maybe, but like it's, I, I am aware that when, you know, some branded podcast is looking for weird music, we probably, uh, we sort of have different versions of what weird music means for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess what I'm hearing is what we shouldn't be doing every episode is saying, but first we got to go back and then a pause and then xylophone music hits. Right. <laughs> no, I think. I mean, I think it's. I think it's all just fine. We're all trying. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, in the end, I am just like psyched that we are living in a time where these that where there are just tools available for people who would it would never occur to them to express themselves in this way to be like, oh, maybe I can just like start a conversation about something that's interesting. You know, like Sam was like, I don't, I didn't, I, I'm not like trained in audio production, but here she is, like making this like cool and like really important work for people that's like helping it's like it is she is like net helping the world <laughs> with the thing that she's doing and like that is that's that you know that sort of that is my like like bedrock statement for me before like well the music should sound like this or like whatever <laughs> that's my impersonation of myself by the way that's what i call it but um <laughs> But so, yeah, so, you know, these, these things are, all, we're, we, I just want to be clear that I am talking on a very sort of very fine level here about we're talking about a component of music and sound yeah. design clearly, but I would just like it to be clear that like we're living in this crazy time where super cool people are making awesome stuff with these really awesome tools. Sam, any reaction? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Joel had to say. I think 
the space to play comes with some some room to play so like when you are working on very tight deadlines and things like that it's very attractive to kind of copy what other podcasts are doing because you've heard it and you know that it works um but i think as the uh industry grows up a little bit more people will have more room to do some cool capital w weird stuff (laughs) (laughs) i love it Uh, In the interest of time, let's move to my clip. So I'd like to put forth for both of you a clip I made. um, You know, I I actually forget when exactly this aired, but I re-aired it at the beginning of the pandemic because it was about a small business going through a tough time and then rallying together a community around their business, like using their business as a force for communal good. It just felt like perfect. It felt perfectly of the moment, you know, a couple months into the pandemic. And it's it's a story about the Alchemist Brewery and I'll kind of leave it at that. It, this is the fir- oh, the other thing is this is the very first thing you hear when you hit play on the episode. So it, it's a mix of of sound and music, uh, and it was me just sort of tinkering and 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 doing my best. We'll see what you both think. I'm a little nervous about playing this, uh, but here we go. It's weird, isn't it? Sometimes the day after a big storm, it gets really nice out. The sun starts shining and the birds are chirping. Life seems kind of awesome. So all that mess and destruction from the night before doesn't quite fit the scene. It's like a, a portal just opened from the past and spewed out all these shards of wood and glass and twisted metal and shook all this garbage all over the ground and then closed up. The way that you feel on a calm day just doesn't match what you felt when things were chaotic during the storm. It's just weird. I don't know. It's it's hard to make sense of it. Back in 2003, Jen and John Kimmick struggled to make sense of it, too. The brick building where the couple ran a brew pub was 150 years old, and so it was prone to quite a few issues. But floods? They just didn't happen in Waterbury, Vermont. Not like this, anyway. Um, It was just a fetid, disgusting mess. About four feet of water ran across the first floor where the pub and restaurant were located. But that was nothing compared to the destruction down below. Our entire basement was filled with water. You know, tanks were bobbing in the brewery. We also had our offices in our basement. Plus all their food storage and a big walk-in cooler. Okay, uh... Sam, I've talked to you multiple times now on this show, so I feel a little, uh, I feel very comfortable saying like, please be gentle. What do you got? What did I do wrong? What did I do well? Like, what'd you notice? I've never done this before. So like, uh, please comment. I'm going to, I'm just going to bury my head in the blanket right here. I've also, I've never live critiqued someone else's podcast on a podcast. <laughs> so I'm a bit nervous, but <laughs> I, I thought that was great. I really thought that that was great. I love so you said that, that that's how you opened the episode. I love a big, weird, what's going on. Like, you explained the clip, but I was still like, oh, my God, there's destruction afoot. Like, that was, <laughs> it was just, uh, uh, it, it intrigued me. Then there was that shift between Storm and the next day, and I didn't quite get what the shift was, but I noticed that there was a shift, and I felt like I was in this visual sort of space, and then your voice comes in, and you explain why we're why the shift has happened and you're making that analogy of what the day after a storm feels like. And then we get to the characters and the music supports kind of like this story that's going along as the characters are explaining what's happening. And I just, I thought it was good. Oh my God. I've never been happier on this show. Thank you so much. Uh, Joel. I feel like I should take you down now. Sam. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm open to it. I have, I have, like I said, I have thin Good skin, cop, bad but cop. This is exactly Seriously, that's what, what you're going to, that's what you're going to play for us. That's where you're going <laughs> to, Oh God! Please be gentle. <laughs> okay, no. Um. So I thought really what was interesting to me is how long the introduction went before you started talking. I thought was super effective because I was just like, "What's going?" I'm just like this. These kind of like found sounds, and it really was like 
this story could be about anything. And it, when it started in, I was like, wow, okay. And it, it's kind of seamlessly kind of went in. And I thought that the um, the music came in the that had this kind of like a uh, sort of slower pulse to it, which I thought was good because we kind of, you brought us to a place where we're not really sure what's going on, as Sam mentioned. With regard to the actual sort of uh, type of music that it was, it it was... <laughs> Hit me. Don't hold back, please. I, I, I'm not sure that it necessarily communicated the sort of confusion that that part was, that I was, that could have been accentuated a little more. Um, but it, it did in sort of pulse in, in, in terms of you're kind of waiting in between each beat for to find out what's going to happen next. But in terms of the sort of the harmony, the sort of like the kinds of chords that were used were sort of a little on the upbeat side, which was kind of, uh, I thought, a hair mismatched with what I should have been feeling given the content oh, of the actual story. That's really but, good. What what's in your head? Like, what's the type of music or beat or instruments you're you're sort of envisioning right now to try and just bring like that a out? low drone, you know, <laughs> a little xylophone after that. I mean, the way, I mean, that's the thing is that like that that section probably you do want something that's sort of minimal and ominous and maybe like amorphous because you're sort of discovering the listener is discovering something sort of weird and not great at the exact same time that the that the protagonists are right and so you're sort of at this you're sort you sort of are stuck with a bunch of questions that are have not yet fully formed like the questions haven't even fully formed yeah. little than the answers and so that that sort of more uncomfortable music that doesn't necessarily have like i guess what you'd call like a tonal center it's not like it's not based on like a chord progression it's not telling you to have a certain feeling it's more just highlighting the fact that you don't know what you should necessarily be feeling at that moment. So let's end here. We've talked a lot about putting in the reps, testing and tinkering and listening and giving feedback. And I just don't think there's any way about this. That's how you get good at this stuff. But is there one thing you can tell someone for how to get started at this? Because a lot of shows would be so much better if they did use some sound. They did use some music. And I think people hold back because they feel like it's so elusive. So any advice for people who are like, Sam, I really admire what you do. Joel, I love your craft. Um, It feels so far away from what I can do on my show. Where do I even get into this stuff? How do I begin? Like I have an episode coming up in two weeks. I'd love to add some of these elements to it. And you say to them, great, here's maybe how you get into this and access something that feels kind of murky to you. Sam, anything to, to get us going there? Yeah, I mean, if uh, if it is their body of work and they're the ones who are doing the design for it, and maybe like if it's two weeks, you're probably accessing um, some stock music or something like that. Like, just get started. I mean, you know your project best. You know the kinds of feelings that you want to convey with your project. So, you know, just put that like put that in the DAW. Like, see what happens. And if it if it's not good, just silence those tracks and export it without it. Like. <laughs> play around you know i I could definitely use a dose of that i feel like i'm the person who doesn't try stuff because i'm like what if it doesn't work and it's just like yeah then what then it's like you just do something else man it's like that's a talk i give myself daily i mean with regard to music you know if you have a friend or relative who makes music you can always chat to them about it and maybe they can help you out with something um you know you can always I'm sure you have some kind of specialty that you can offer someone in return for that, even if you don't have a budget. You also people, you know, if, if there's an artist that you like and you do have a budget, it's totally fine for just approaching someone whose music that you heard on SoundCloud and you were like, "Hey, is, have you ever done this before? Would you be interested in do or interested in doing this? Here's what I do." Like, I, I get that it's just sort of if you if you have just no idea, it's hard to just kind of try to do a thing but really that's just how this world i think works is that you just hear someone doing a cool thing and then you talk to them about it and any any of these sort of email forums of radio producers and podcast producers are just awesome places to meet people yeah yeah and i'll end here uh which is to say that what you just heard from me dear listener friend is the product of i don't know 250 or 300 episodes of trying stuff that had sound design and music um, and when it started, I guarantee the sounds I used, it made me sound probably like one of those random kitschy 
uh, like radio DJs where it's like, oh, I had such a terrible date last night. And you hear like honka honka in the background, you know, like that, <laughs> that ridiculousness. I guarantee you that's what it felt like. Very choppy and staccato, like words spoken, insert sound, more words spoken. And for the music, I guarantee you it sounded like gratuitous music beds. Like why is there a uh, music suddenly playing under what the guest is saying? And slowly you realize like, okay, these things can integrate further and they're meant to enhance moments and further tell the story and cement the theme and, and the feel, you know, the music bed should start during a moment of transition or conflict um, or to hasten your voiceover where you're bridging the gap between, you know, like details the guest gave in their story that maybe they meandered and you want to tighten it. So play that music under the voiceover and get to the other side of what they're saying. There's all these like little moves you start to pick up on. But the only way I started to do that was to really, truly suck at this for a long time. And I just, I, I don't know if that's inspiring to people or disheartening, but I just don't see any other way, you know? So what is it? The Jake, the dog from adventure time sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so few people didn't suck when they first started anything. So, right. (laughs) All right. So go suck at something and make, maybe make it this stuff. Everyone. (laughs) That's my specialty. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Joel, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Cherie Turner with original theme music by Cardboard Rocket Chip. You can learn more about my projects, including my weekly free newsletter for creative people, my books, and my course for podcasters at jayakunzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Castos offers tools for both public and increasingly private podcasts. They integrate directly into your website and all the tools you're using to run things like membership groups or sell courses and build online communities. And if you're running a conventional podcast that's been public for a while, it's time to start thinking about private podcasting. I mean, we talk all the time about how podcasting and audio are both intimate, right? Well, you can now share exclusive content with your best audience and provide that unique value behind a paywall or just for free in a place that is subscription only in a way that they actually deserve. Go deeper with your audience, own the experience, don't depend on what Apple looks like or Spotify looks like. Give your audience the experience they deserve. Visit castos.com. All of these links, as always, are in the show notes. All right, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe this work we do is not about who arrives. We're so obsessed with like how many downloads, how many total people follow us. That's not what this is about, people. It's about who stays. It's about the relationships and the connections and the audience and the community that form. That's what this is for. It's about who stays. So thank you for staying with me, and I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of the show. See ya. See ya.